Welcome to episode 437 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a compelling conversation with highly respected public defender and author of the acclaimed new book titled Scrapped, Justice and a Teen Informant, just published this past July, Lisa Peebles. And we talk with Lisa about being a public defender. We discuss the case and its story behind her new book. Very compelling. A cover-up. Informants. The Sheriff's Department. Small-town policing. Rewards and eyewitnesses. FBI profilers being in prison while innocent, among other things. A great conversation with Lisa Peebles on this week's episode. We have an EWSA titled Oneness, and we share an excerpt from Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh's book called Anger on Compassionate Policing. And we share a poem titled Mid-September. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 437 of Troubadours and Tours.
set the milk bag for a soldier in drag and I'll search the world over for my angel in black yeah search the world over for a euro trash Walt tickles the piano keys as Nico looks out the window, standing next to me, while I sit on the couch writing this sentence. I am amazed at living. I know I overlook a bunch. The time is ticking by. It isn't really real, though we measure so much by it. I am over a half century old, which is young in the grander scheme of life insignificant, truthfully. Yet to me and those that I matter to, my matter matters. I barely know anything. What have I learned? To tie my shoes, run a meeting, pay bills, eat pizza, drink beer, mow the lawn, fix the toilet, a little bit of math, how to French kiss, one of my most cherished realizations. It's directly linked to your spirit, soul, heart, passion, and creative of patterns to lure and dance and celebrate your oneness for a while. And for just a while longer, just a little bit more. Words are wonderful, but oh, the joy to be rolling around together on the floor but then the so-called real world i am not sure about the way to know and accomplish lasting happiness and justice in it how to eradicate or at least minimize the personal and social ills that our people create over and over again it is not totally clear beyond an understanding that we tend to intrinsically house human foibles that teeter toward self-destruction. We, I, don't trust the sense of love and peace and contentment. This is a problem.
I cannot remember anything you say when the streets are talking. Yeah, they call my name, and I walk a little further. I could go all day, and the trees are reaching, pointing out the way. Peebles, is that you? Good morning. Hi. Hi. E-W? Yes, E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. So nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before Appreciate we, it. oh, it's our pleasure. I can't wait to talk with you. 
Um, before we get started, I'd like to share a little background with the listeners. So, Lisa Peebles has been head of the Federal Public Defender's Office in Syracuse, New York, for 10 years, and has been a lawyer in the office for the past 21. She's taken 30 cases to trial in that time, with nine acquittals. In 2014, the New York State Criminal Defense Lawyers Association gave her the Thurgood S. Marshall Award as the state's outstanding criminal practitioner. Lisa is co-author with John O'Brien of the recently published and highly acclaimed book titled Scrapped, Justice and a Teen Informant. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program attorney and author Lisa Peebles. So um, how did you get to this story? It's very intriguing. I was, again, Scrapped, Justice and a Teen Informant. And um, it was just published, right, in, in July, I think. Uh, yep. And July. J- July 29? Yep. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen it uh, compared to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, the story line. Uh, also, it's been uh, called something out of a Coen Brothers movie, you know, like Fargo or something to that effect. Right. Uh, and I guess you just came across this while doing your, your work as a public defender. Yeah, so it just so happened uh, when I became head of the office in 2013, we had a vacancy that I had to fill. And I had a lot of candidates apply, but I wound up hiring this longtime criminal defense attorney who worked in private practice. And obviously she had quite a following as a private lawyer for many years one of her clients she had represented was Gary Thibodeau, and she represented him throughout the appeal process in state court. And that was after he had been found guilty by a jury of kidnapping an 18-year-old woman who, who was presumed dead. It was less than a year after she came on board that she got wind of a woman who was trying to f- f- reach out to her to say she had information that could exonerate Gary. And by that time, he had been in prison for many years uh, because that he was convicted back in uh, 1995. So unfortunately, the information, or fortunately, I guess you could say, had been diverted to the DA's office, and uh, they were refusing to share the information with the lawyer that was in my office. And she continued to hound him. And eventually, the results of their investigation into the, quote, this new information was turned over to her. And because she was in my office, my investigator, who happened to be a retired deputy chief of the Syracuse Police Department, started going through it and reviewing the materials. And he was really bothered by what he saw. And then uh, he came, he, he listened to some recordings and he insisted that I listen to these recordings. And after I listened to them, I was stunned. Um, I had been doing criminal defense work for many years and I've seen many uh, recorded interrogations and monitored phone calls. And cl- there was something very troubling about what I witnessed and what I was listening to. And I thought, uh, there's something more going on here. And, um, you know, because I'm the federal public defender, it was a state case. I couldn't just jump into a case. I have to be appointed by the court. So I recruited um, a journalist, an investigative reporter who I had known throughout the years working in federal court and shared the information with him in the hopes that he could sort of publicize some of this and do his own investigation and kind of see what he can come up with. 
because we were trying to recruit somebody to help this guy, uh, Gary, um, because we felt clearly there was some sort of cover up going on. Uh, as it turned out, we there once the reporter became involved and I shared the information, we were sort of doing a, a parallel investigation and uncovered that uh, the woman who was kidnapped, Heidi Allen, had been working with the sheriff's department as a teenager and she was actually signed up as an informant. That information hadn't been turned over to the lawyer at the trial level. So that's where I kind of dug in and sought appointment uh, by our chief judge because I felt like I could pursue um, a constitutional violation uh, known as a Brady violation for withholding of important information. And he agreed to do it. And he knew I was going to have to exhaust all of Gary's state court remedies before it would ever hit federal court. So that's really how I got involved. That's kind of the long version of how I became involved. So was that around 2015 or so then? So 2014 is when I actually was appointed. So July of 2014, it was 2013, shortly after, probably less than a year after I hired the lawyer where she got wind of this information and they they nutsed around with this new information, the DA's office, and, and got back to her probably six months later, and then she got the information. So all throughout the summer of 2014 is when a lot of, you know, we were trying to strategize and figure out how we could help this, help Gary, and that's when John O'Brien became involved, and that's when I filed a motion for a new trial after having been appointed by our chief judge. So, uh, Gary... Thibodeau, who was convicted of uh, the murder of, of Heidi Allen, or Ki- I guess, right? He, he, yep. he was already in prison for close to 20 years, I guess, at that point. Yeah, that's correct. He was. And he had given up all hope. He had lost all hope and faith. And he had sort of just resigned himself to the fact that he was going to um, die in prison. And, um, you know, his appeals had been exhausted. Uh, the lawyer that I had hired already had done a habeas petition. Uh, because we learned that they had withheld her, uh, the victim's diaries from the defense. Um, and uh, the diaries were never seen by any of the defense attorneys. Um, so that was, th- those were also withheld. Um, what did they, what did they focus on uh, Mr. Thibodeau? So Gary was indicted along with his brother. His brother just so happened to be the person who made the last purchase at the convenience store before Heidi Allen was kidnapped. She worked and, there, she, I guess. Yep, right? yep. She worked there, and she had been working there almost two years. And, um, you know, ironically, her, her uh, informant status had been exposed in the very parking lot where she worked. She wasn't working there at the time. Her information was exposed. She was only 16 when they signed her up. But um, uh, her there was a pedigree card with her information and a Polaroid snapshot of her and, um, and, and notes about drug dealing that was dropped in the parking lot. And then it was found by somebody and then uh, turned back over to the sheriff's department. But Who the heck dropped that in the parking lot? Was that by accident or... Her, her handler, uh, who worked at the sheriff's department, it was Deputy, Deputy, Deputy Van Patten, who then became involved in investigating her disappearance. Mm. Uh, but they you know, wanted to say she was never used in the capacity of an informant, which even if that were so, it wouldn't matter to somebody who came upon that information in the parking lot or once the community learned. Right. 
working as an informant, regardless of what she may or may not have been doing. But right. we also had witnesses saying that she was doing things um, that, um, you know, wouldn't matter. The drug dealers wouldn't know what she had done or not done. The, the mere fact that she was signed up and working as an informant was was the issue. That could be a death sentence. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and Mr. Thibodeau's brother, how did that, just because he had the last purchase before um, Heidi disappeared, how did then it get uh, connected to Gary himself from his brother? So that was the very, in, that was an interesting kind of turn of events. But uh, the last purchase registered was 742 and two packs of basic cigarettes. When Richard Thibodeau, Gary's brother, learned that the clerk was missing, he called. It was right before 10 in the morning. Uh, he called the sheriff's department to say, hey, look, I was in the store that morning and I bought two packs of cigarettes. Van Patten just so happened to be the deputy that went and interviewed him at his mother-in-law's house. Uh, they were having Easter celebration there in the morning. And um Went there, interviewed him. He showed him the pack of cigarettes. Richard's van was in the driveway. He gave a statement. That is how they discovered that Richard was the person that made the last purchase. So they automatically began to focus on Richard, which obviously it wouldn't it would make little sense that he would call and identify himself as the person that made the last purchase. He didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, but in any event. They then put out a uh, reward, and there was an eyewitness who came forward and said that he drove by and saw two men. One grabbed the woman behind from behind in a bear hug, and the person was taller than Heidi Allen, and Heidi Allen's 5'11". Uh, and the other person looked maybe a little older who opened the van door. Now, he came forward after, like I said, after they posted a reward. So now they, the sheriffs are convinced that there are two people involved. And they show a picture of Richard's van to this eyewitness. And he said, it's the right style, but the wrong color. Hmm. And that was original. At first, he said he couldn't identify any vehicle. He didn't remember. And he identified that the, the two men were over like 5'11", six feet tall. Um, and of course that would make a big difference when you're looking at someone like Gary, who's five, eight and Richard, who's five, five. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, in the person that had Heidi in the bear hug was taller than her. And like I said, she was five eleven. So they continued to show him pictures of the van. They drove him by the van and he, and they told him to sleep on it. And then he said, well, maybe he's 80% sure that that's the van, and next thing you know, he was 100% confident. Yep, that's the van that I saw. That was it. Presto, changeo, they then indicted Richard. Now they needed to find who else was involved. And Richard just so happened to have a brother who lived in town who was somewhat of a rebel rouser and kind of got in trouble here and there. So he became the focus of the sheriff's department. And then there was the uh, he had a um, outstanding warrant for a drug possession out of Massachusetts. It was a misdemeanor. They never him and his girlfriend, they never showed up for court. So they extradited the two of them and which would never happen. You would I, I've never, ever known anyone to be extradited for a misdemeanor offense to another state. First of all, they don't do that um, because it's a waste of resources. Right. 
but but in any event, they went through the trouble of doing that. And then then we have two jailhouse informants that said Gary made statements that were incriminating as though he had some involvement in Heidi Allen's disappearance. Not that he said he did, but just was making statements like they'll never find her. She's dead. Um, you know, things of that nature. And that's what they needed to indict Gary. And then he was indicted. So then the two brothers were indicted uh, with act with kid for kidnapping and acting in concert together uh, to kidnap uh, Heidi Allen. And uh, all along, they the sheriff's department said they couldn't identify any motive. There was no motive um, that they can think of. But they did have an FBI profiler who came, um, Clint Van Zant, who did a, a workup shortly after Heidi disappeared and kind of profiled who he believed may have been involved in her kidnapping. And it really did not match anything about the Thibodeaus. Um, but that's that takes us down the, uh, another avenue, which, you know, in the book, we go through everything that we were able to uncover, um, which there were some wild twists and turns along the way. I, I will say that. Um and and Heidi, um, she she has never been found, right? Never been found. The closest we got, which you know we reveal in the book um, through witness statements of the new people um, that they were, you know, that had made statements that they were involved. We learned of a location after uh, John O'Brien published a story that there had been a dilapidated cabin in the uh, woods off of Rice Road, and cadaver dogs did hit for the presence of human remains. Three separate cadaver dogs did. So um, that, that's nearby. That's near nearby where she worked and where she lived, and the, the Thibodeaux lived. Yeah, it's not far. It's it's not. It's not that far from the DNW. I'd say it's probably eight miles from there. Um, but the one of the new suspects made uh, incriminating statements that he was involved in, in what they did to her, and that uh, they took her in a cabin under off of Rice Road. And this cabin happened to be off of Rice Road, and that's where the cadaver dogs all hit for human re- remains. So there was another suspect then. There were three. Well, not at the time. They focused tunnel vision on Gary and Richard. So the new evidence that surfaced um, revealed that there were three individuals who throughout the years have admitted their involvement in the kidnapping and murder of Heidi Allen. And those were the folks that we went after trying to exonerate Gary and get him a new trial. The the glitch that we had is obviously if the, the closest we came to physical evidence was the well, there was a couple. There was another thing, too, but um, was the cadaver dogs hitting for the presence of human remains because obviously her her remains have not been found. We in the book reveal what we believe happened based on the statements from various people that we believe made admissions um, and that had made admissions and piecing it all together Um and, um, you know, the, the sad reality of it is if you don't have DNA evidence, it's it's often hard, even when you have DNA evidence, to convince prosecutors to admit that they made a mistake. But imagine a situation like we have here where everything's pointing in another direction, but we don't have the body and we don't have DNA evidence. 
Um, but we were, we did uncover some very interesting facts uh, throughout the course of our investigation I, that are very that very were very compelling, short of DNA. I guess a couple of questions that come to mind, and maybe to some of the listeners, listeners is, and maybe this is a myth or misinformation that we have, the general public. If there's no body, how, how is someone convicted of the crime uh, is the first thing that I want to ask you. And the second thing is, why, why would the sheriff's department have a cover-up going on? Okay, so to answer your first, the first part of that question, um, well, the presumption of kidnapping uh, or the presumption of death under the New York state kidnapping statute was challenged by Randy Bianco, the lawyer that I hired her initial appeal after the case was that it was unconstitutional. Uh, but the appellate courts in New York upheld it. Um, it, it's basically, um, there is a presumption of death in a certain, in certain cases where there's no reason to believe that the person would have otherwise just taken off. And if they're gone for a certain amount of time, if they're gone for, um, you know, any length of time in this case, you know, there was no indication at all that Heidi would have taken off and they used that to say she has to be dead. Um, and they were able to basically, uh, you know, obviously the challenge to that statute was upheld. So, um, there's in New York state, a presumption of, of death. If, if there's no indication that the person would have ever have left voluntarily and everything points in the direction of, you know, foul play. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as why would the sheriff's department have a motive to, mm -hmm. um, cover it up? Because if in fact she's the informant that they signed her up to be, and that's the reason and the motive for which she was abducted and murdered, then it would fall on them. So it was easy to use the Thibodeaux as a scapegoat and say, well, there was no real motive. It was just an opportunity. You know, they just happened to go to the store to buy cigarettes, saw her by herself and decided to grab her and stuff her in the van. Um, and that was really what they said. Look, we don't have to prove motive. We don't have to prove this. We don't have to prove that. that. Um, and the other thing is they also were the ones that exposed her identity by recklessly or negligently or however you want to say it, dropping her identification in the parking lot. Right. And by the way, they never even told her that that had happened. So unbeknownst to her, you know, mm. she had been exposed and didn't even know it. Yeah. So, I mean, they could also be sued, for, you know, uh, right. for that as well, besides the reputation. Um uh, by the way, folks, if you just tuned in, we're listening. We're we're listening to a conversation uh, with Lisa Peebles, public defender and author of Scrapped Justice and a Teen Informant. Um, so, you know, let's talk about policing in our time. Before you know it, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time uh, to talk this go around. Maybe we'll talk again. I'd love to. You're fascinating, and I love the work you do. It's important. Public defenders are so. Uh, important in our system of justice, and oftentimes they're not appreciated as much as they should be. Um, so I want to say that. But, uh, you know, what about policing generally? You know, you've been doing uh, this work for a number of years besides this case. How corrupt is it, you know, in your estimation from your experience? Is this an aberration or is it all too often uh, existent, this sort of corruption in, in policing? I gotta, I, I gotta say that I haven't seen this level of a cor corruption and cover up in my years practicing. I, I've seen injustices for sure. 
I've seen, I've had experiences where, you know, information has been withheld that should have been turned over. Um, it, it, but this was by far really the worst. And, and that's why I felt compelled and we felt compelled to write the book because it doesn't just happen once in a while. It, it's pretty per- pervasive, I believe, throughout the country, particularly in smaller towns where perhaps there's a lack of education, a lack of training with the law enforcement, particularly sheriff's departments. I mean, we're talking about a political position. So there's real, there's really no educational or training required. You're elected in the position. And then, you know, it just becomes a question of what, what, skill levels that an individual has and you know the general public doesn't necessarily know um so i think that's first and foremost in these smaller rural areas where they're not equipped to handle this type of an investigation they just don't have the resources the know-how the know-how or the knowledge um and they did call in the FBI profiler in this case, but they just kind of discarded, you know, his his information. And and the state police were called off and they weren't allowed to come in and set up roadblocks because, again, I think it was more of a, you know, this is our, you know, our neighborhood and our turf and you're we can handle it sort of thing. And honestly, I think that happened because it doesn't make sense to me that they would otherwise call off the state police if there wasn't a reason, for example, you know, letting the cat out of the bag that she was an informant and her identity had been exposed. So that's my take on it. Um, And I think this case really highlights the fallibility of using jailhouse informants and supposed eyewitnesses uh, and having their testimony carry the day, uh, because that's really what it boiled down to in Gary's case. Wow. I hear Simon in the background. That's kind of apropos. Um, yeah, and, and as you also said, it, it a lot of it was manufactured. You know, you 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 keep talking to a witness as the you know sheriff's department saying, "No, that is the van, right? That is the color. These are the guys." You do that right. enough, you know, you're manufacturing the narrative. Right. It's it's suggestibility goes on far too often in our system. There's no question about it, and um, and and that did happen in this case, and also. Um, you know, the um, uh, even the jurors were saying that they made a mistake in this case. Uh, they regretted it after they read about the new evidence. And one juror in particular came forward and said, well, I thought, you know, we thought he must be guilty of something. The sheriffs must know something because he's sitting here and uh, maybe we don't know everything. And I think often, you know, in our jury system, they there's that automatic presumption that the person is actually guilty instead of they're presumed innocent. Um, right. It's reverse. And, it's reverse of what it's supposed to be. That it abs- that absolutely is the case. Um, you really are working against these, you know, biases and these presumptions as a defense attorney whenever you're representing somebody and 12 members of the community walk in and know nothing about the case. They're thinking, oh, geez, they must have done something because otherwise we wouldn't have to come here, you know, and that's where it starts. And I guess that's assuming it's even a jury of of the um, the uh, defendant's peers. And, and, and yes, and that's a good point, because often what, what I see in federal court, is, you know, I could have uh, black or brown clients and my jury consists of 12 white members of the community. 
And I, I think to myself, I can't imagine being on trial and sitting there and having everybody in the jury box look nothing like me. Uh, and that's a lot of times what our clients are are faced with. And I think that has to change. That That is something that certainly has to change. Um, and yeah. uh, the more light that gets shed on that and the more people learn and are educated about it, I think they'll understand that it's very important. So what what about Mr. Thibodeau's chances of getting out, Gary? Gary's chances of getting out, is that going to occur or is it done? He just has to deal with his sentence? Well, here's the problem. We were we took it to the um, spoiler alert in the book, but um, we we went to the highest court in New York State, and the decision uh, was four to three. We lost. We had three dissenters that wrote a marvelous decision on why Gary should get a new trial. So we were prepared to go into federal court because we had anticipated having to do that. I never thought. We would have to work as hard as we did when we uncovered so much of what we uncovered during the whole process, which is, like I said, in the book, you'll see the interesting twists and turns. It, it, would, it, it sort of kind of blows you away. But we decided we were going to apply one more time to the highest court and say, you need to reconsider this because in the majority opinion, you made some mistakes, factual mistakes. So we were hoping maybe they'd take a second look at it. While that was happening, Gary passed away in prison. And the sad part about it was he was declining rapidly and we were working like crazy to try to get him out um, just because we knew he was on borrowed time. And, um, you know, the, the saddest part of the whole thing was that I really made a promise to him that I was going to be able to follow, you know, get him out because I was so convinced. But I was so naive when I started uh, the whole process. I had never been involved in a case like this where, you know, you're battling all these institutions and I had no idea what I was in for, but it was definitely a rude awakening. Um, which again is why I really wanted to write the book. Lisa Peebles, it's, it's uh, wonderful talking with you. Uh, and, and again, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, in the name of justice, uh, and the book, Again, Scrapped Justice and a Teen Informant. Um, just came out July 29, 2021. It's getting really great reviews. New York Times, I read a review that was very, very uh, positive. Uh, so folks, go out and buy it. I guess you can get it on Amazon, I presume, right? And Yes, you can. Yep, you can get it on Amazon. You can download it on a Kindle. Yep. You, it's, not in, it's, it's in bookstores, too, Barnes & Noble and... Um, yeah. And it's, and it, uh, Peebles is P-E-E-B-L-E-S and O'Brien, the authors. So, uh, parting thoughts, your li- the listeners here, what, what could you say to them being an expert on, on, uh, you know, justice basically, or trying to understand justice, you day to day, you're working to, I'm sure, understand it more and more and try to realize it more and more. No system is perfect. That's for, sh- for sure. But you, you know, winning the prestigious Thurgood S. Marshall Award as New York State's Outstanding Criminal Practitioner. I, you know, what what can you say to, to our listeners about justice? Give them a little insight. I would say that we can't take for granted what happens uh, during an investigation, even if we're, we're talking professional law enforcement 
agencies because they make mistakes. They're human beings. And I view my position, and I always have, as somebody who tries to keep the system honest, make them accountable, make them do their work, make them do a very thorough investigation. And if they're going to convict my client, they're going to do it because they're going to have the evidence and the right person. So I feel that um, we need to understand how our system works and appreciate it and never never underestimate the power of these powerful institutions and the fact that sometimes when mistakes are made, they're just not capable of accepting the fact that a mistake has been made because our system is really grounded in finality rather than taking a hard look into whether something went wrong or there was a mistake made. So I think that's the takeaway. Well said. Lisa Peebles, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I really enjoyed it. I thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
fell out of my head And I was here with gasoline Set it light and set it free And now we're reading from Thich Nhat Hanh's book titled Anger. This passage is Building a Compassionate Police Force. To be kind does not mean to be passive. To be compassionate does not mean to allow others to walk all over you, to allow yourself to be destroyed. You have to protect yourself and protect others. If you need to lock someone up because he is dangerous, then you have to do that, but you have to do it with compassion. Your motivation is to prevent that person from continuing his course of destruction and from feeding his anger. You don't have to be a monk in order to be compassionate. You can be a policeman. You can be a judge or a prison guard. But as a policeman, a judge or prison guard, we need you to be a bodhisattva. We need you to be beings of great compassion. Although you have to be very firm, you should always keep compassion alive in you. And if you practice mindful living, you have to help the policeman act out of compassion and non-fear. The police in our time are full of fear, anger, and stress because they have been assaulted many times. Those who hate the police and insult them don't understand the police yet. In the morning, when the police put on their uniform and guns, they are not sure that they will return home alive in the evening. The police suffer very much. Their families suffer very much. They don't enjoy beating people. They don't enjoy shooting people. But because they do not know how to handle the blocks of fear, suffering, and violence in them, they also can become victims of society like other people. So... As a police chief, if you really understand the minds and hearts of the people on your police force, you will train yourself in such a way that compassion and understanding will be born in your heart. Then you will be able to educate and help the policemen and women who have to go out on the streets every morning, every night, to do the hard task of keeping the city in peace. In France, the police are called peacekeepers. But if you don't have peace in you, how can you keep peace in the city? You have to keep peace in yourself first. And peace here means non-fear, intelligence, and insight. The police do learn a number of techniques in order to protect themselves. But self-defense techniques are not enough. You have to be intelligent. You have to act out of non-fear. If you are too fearful... Then you will make many mistakes. You will be tempted to use your gun, and you may kill many innocent people. She mean all the world 
But then she like another guy I fall down dead, she never see the tears I cry Said please, please, please do not go Mid-September, yellow-topped hanging clouds and mist float as if I could touch them when they graze in a haze the mountaintops of lush misty green with branch dirt rock paths in between and small streams of rainwater traveling toward the base summit creek. 
Episode 437 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Lisa Peebles, Thich Han, and these musical artists... Thelonious Monk, Cracker, PJ Harvey, Middle Kids, The Violent Femmes, Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, Brentford Marcellus, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.